the book of Jonah this morning, and we will pick up the study that we started there last week. We'll begin this morning in Jonah, the first chapter. We'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 3 to get us started, and we'll discuss a little bit about where we left off last week and move on into uh, verses 2 and 3 this morning. Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it, to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Last time we gave a brief background of Jonah, his family, his ministry, albeit brief, and what is known about him. We discussed that. We looked at Jonah being the forerunner of God's plan to be a light to the Gentiles and going to the city of Nineveh. We discussed the theme of grace that we see all throughout Jonah, the the mercy, the compassion, the grace of God that is shown throughout this book, that's shown to Jonah. And we discussed briefly how that is applied to Jonah, to Nineveh, and to us. And you'll probably hear uh, me mention this as we go throughout this lesson. And, and one of the things that the Lord has impressed upon me thus far is how this applies to us on an individual level. Yes, we're studying the book of Jonah in totality. Again, a brief book, four chapters long. But all throughout it, as I've been studying, there's been conviction in my heart of looking inside of me to understand how, one, the things that Jonah failed in that I fail in, that Nineveh's shortcomings are shortcomings that I've had. Um, And we see that in it all, God's grace is sufficient. God's grace covers all. And lastly, last week, as I've been reminded multiple times, um, Throughout the week and even this morning, we met Jonah's evil twin brother, Nona, um, and hopefully we won't talk too much about him today, um, but as it is, now it's just running through my mind trying to not say Nona and say Jonah instead. So if for some reason that evil brother of his shows up, we'll just continue on with it, and I'll ask for you to show me grace. Last week in verse 2, we looked at Jonah's calling. The Lord told him to go to cry out to the city of Nineveh. And we understood that there was an obedience that was needed, that wasn't shown to heed the call of the Lord. We looked at being ready in season and out of season in our own lives, regardless of what or where the Lord may call us to. And we'll pick up there in verse 2 with that thought. Jonah, or, uh, Jonah that was a new one, Uh, Jonah was called to go to the people of Nineveh, and Nineveh was an important city. In verse 2, we see that. Go cry to this city, and we'll we'll talk about this great city. But we see here back in 2 Kings 19, in verse 36, So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went his way, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. Again, this is where the king of Assyria dwelled. This was an important city, and what God was telling Jonah was, This people needs to hear what I'm giving you to say. People need to hear, it's no different today, this message of grace, of God's love, his desire for them to come to a knowledge of him and repent. Whether it's a big city, a little city, Jew or Gentile, all need 
to hear the word of the Lord. God turned his attention and turned his opportunity towards this wicked city, Nineveh, and selected Jonah to be a part of that work that he desired to do. Nineveh was desperately wicked. It was a wicked city and a wicked place. And that wickedness had come up before the Lord, and it was time for it to be dealt with. There was, in that city, there was evil, distress, adversity, calamity. There was a great need in this city. God knew it. Jonah knew it. He recognized that. But they approached it very differently. Their action and reaction to it was on opposite ends of the spectrum, as we see here. Hard to see, I know, on this map, but I'm sure if you flip to the back of your Bible or or in your Bible application, if you have one, you can see a map of, of the times here, of what, um, specifically up in the, the right, up where Iraq-ish would be today, you see Nineveh there along the Tigris River. You see Samaria down closer to the coast where Jonah was, and then you see Joppa where he ended up. Nineveh was called great because both in its size and importance it was It was rather large, and we'll get more into those specifications later. It was originally built by Nimrod, we see that back in Genesis, and was located on the eastern bank of the Tigris River, as we see there. Most estimate it's about 500 miles from Israel in what we would consider modern-day Iraq. And if you think about that trip from Israel to Nineveh, there was no regional jets, there was no train, they traveled on foot or by animal, And that's about 500 miles. For us to drive home to Denver, it's about 625 miles. That's about nine hours in the car, going 70 miles an hour. That's a long day. I mean, it's a full day's journey in the car. You can imagine this journey by foot, by camel, by whatever animal you chose to saddle, um, traveling 18 to 20 miles a day, which I think is a pretty good movement. Um, That's almost a month's journey to get there. So it was not like, hey, go down the street and talk to these people. This was a large geographic mission that Jonah was being sent on. It was the capital of the ancient Assyrian Empire. It was noted for its cruelty and violence, as we'll read in Jonah chapter 3 here in several weeks. The king himself, the king of Nineveh, said, let every man turn from his own evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Now that's pretty shocking that the, the leader of that country would know that. Um, would articulate that, that he knew his people were evil and that he was, frankly, he was okay with it. So as we start to see who the Ninevites are, we can see why this is distasteful to Jonah, why this mission, why this go and cry to this people was something that didn't sound really uh, pleasing to him, something that sounded really enticing to him. Assyria was a hated and cruel nation. It was an enemy of Israel. And so there's you know, some conjecture on my part, it, trying to understand Jonah, trying to think from his perspective that in his mind he might feel like to go and bless his people, to give them opportunity, was to curse his own people. These were the enemy of his people. These were the enemy of Israel. Though their power had subsided during this time of Nineveh and Jeroboam II's reign, their reputation lingered. And Jonah likely had some insight of what was to come. Hosea, a contemporary, spoke... This, he said, he, speaking to Ephraim and Israel, shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrians shall be his king because they refused to repent. Amos goes on to say that they're going to be sent into captivity beyond Damascus. Again, this came to pass. Assyria did conquer Israel around 722 B.C. and itself was conquered by Babylon in 612 B.C. 
So Jonah's concerns weren't unfounded. They weren't irrational. They were logical. He had some understanding of who Nineveh was and what their, their plans may be or what, what might unfold. But just because that's the case doesn't mean that Jonah had license to turn and try to, to oppose God or to overrule God's direction, his will. We understand that God's ways are higher than ours and that this captivity that came to Israel was not because of Assyria's greatness, but rather because of Israel's rebellion. Despite what our logic, our reasoning might be in our own mind, in this case preaching to our enemy, preaching to those we know who desire to bring us harm, whatever our eyes might tell us doesn't make sense or does make sense, if God tells us to do differently, we must listen. He is the decision maker. And at times we we get to give our input through prayers, supplications, thanksgiving, and present our case. And, And I think about this at work oftentimes. And we have these work groups working on a project, and there might be six, seven, eight people working on some type of project from various areas within, within our department or even within the county government. And ultimately, there's one decision maker in that group, but everybody gets to give their input. But usually, when people come into those type of groups, they all think they're decision makers. And then they, they struggle when it's not their decision that's followed. They're given the opportunity to give input, to, to give argument to why to do this or do that. But at the end of the day, there has to be a final decision made. In our life, God is the decision maker. We are blessed and privileged to bring our needs before him, to bring our desires before him, to to bring our wants before him. But at times, as it was to Paul, the answer is, my grace is sufficient. The answer is, no, it's not going to be the way that we want it. And in those cases, as we talked about last week, that should be the times that we just pause It should be the times that we're even more eager to surrender. And again, this is very easy to say. I understand the practical application of doing this is much more difficult than just standing up here and saying, when God presents to you something that is going to be extremely challenging, contrary to your flesh, contrary to your own mind and logic, just pause and wait and see. Because oftentimes it's going to be an opportunity for us to grow, an opportunity for us to see his mighty hand work as it would have been for Jonah if he had just paused and allowed the Lord to do the work that he wanted to initially do. But Jonah chose otherwise. He chose to flee to Tarshish. As you can see on that map, way on the other side is Tarshish, the exact opposite direction of where Nineveh was. Jonah decided to flee, and the thought there is to to run away. And instead of going 500 miles northeast to Nineveh, he went to Joppa the nearest Mediterranean seaport, about 35 miles from Samaria. Again, that's no small journey when you're talking about going by foot. And he started his journey to Tarshish, which was about 2,000 miles, the opposite of Nineveh. You could say Jonah was committed, right? He was all in. I'm going to reject God, and I'm going to do this the right way, as far away as possible. I'm going to to get as far away as this as possible and, and really show how committed I am to not doing the will of God. Again, I'm, I'm sure you guys have those co-workers as well, that sometimes they work harder to get out of working than to just work and do the task at hand. And, and, and it boggles my mind when I watch some of these people, they work so hard to, to buck the system, to not do the work that needs to be done, that they expend way more energy than would have just been done to just do the job 
right the first time. Jonah worked really hard to flee the presence of the Lord. And that thought of flee is to put to flight, to make haste, to reach, to run away. Typically, that thought and that concept is something that we do when we're in danger, as we see in 1 Kings 19. We'll turn there and just look at this example of Elijah when he fled from Jezebel. In 1 Kings 19, verses 2 and 3, we read, Then Jezebel sent messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Again, so often we we use this thought, this process of fleeing in these types of situations. I I would imagine if I asked for a show of hands, if anybody thought Elijah's life here was in danger, I think we would all agree, yes. Uh, The ruler saying, "If, if I don't make your life like one of these dead ones by tomorrow, so help me. That would put a little bit of fear in me if someone was saying, I'm going to kill you by this time tomorrow. So Elijah fled, and we know the story goes on there. The Lord asked him, what are you doing here? Why are you running away from what I've called you to do? Jonah in that same spot, fleeing, running away. Again, we understand that Nineveh was an evil, wicked people, that Jonah probably had some insight into what their intent was as far as expanding their kingdom, of taking Israel captive. But for Jonah, for us, does it make a difference if we travel 2,000 miles the opposite direction of where God wants us to go, or if we simply just turn our back? Is it the distance that makes the difference, or is it just simply that acknowledgement in our own hearts, we're not going to do this, we're not going to follow God's way, because we're smarter, we're more intelligent, and I guess at the base level of it is we just want to do something different. Again, we can, we can try to justify our missteps. I, I could put myself in, up against Jonah here and said, well, if I just avoid this thing the Lord wants me to do and continue on the path, generally speaking, of where the Lord wants me to go, I'm much better than Jonah, who fled 2,000 miles the other direction. We can justify our missteps and significance or weight, and, and certainly I would, if you were going to commit some crime, I'd much rather you shoplift a pack of bubble gum than murder somebody, right? There, there's some variety to that, some weight in that. But anything that's not of faith is sin. We understand this. We understand that two cannot walk together unless they are agreed. Jonah decided in his heart, and at that moment he decided in his heart and took that first step down to the seaport of Joppa. He was as far away from God at that point as he was in the depths of that ship in the storm, as we will see here momentarily. Again, and we don't just want to pile on Jonah, and I said that last week, that I'm not up here standing and and saying that I'm so much better than Jonah. As I said a moment ago, I see a lot of Jonah, a lot of Nineveh in the shortcomings of my life and how the Lord has dealt with me and showed me grace and mercy and grown me and strengthened me. This was a tall task to Jonah, again, to to go to your enemy. And in today's term, we could say, well, we're going to be inserted in the middle of Russia or China or North Korea, these these enemies of the state of our country. And we're going to tell them, you're going to be destroyed unless you turn to God. I mean, again, it sounds a little bit like, oh, yeah, that would never happen. But that's what Jonah is being called to do here. He's saying, go to your enemy, tell that king, we're going to destroy you unless you turn to God. 
Yeah, and that's, that's not something that's easy. And maybe if, even if it wasn't an enemy state, I mean, how many people would want to go down the street to town hall here and tell the mayor, hey, we're destroying Lee Summit if you, if you as a city and as a government don't repent and turn to God? That, that's not a pleasant assignment any way you slice or dice it. But we see a contrast in the Old Testament. We, we can think of Daniel. Daniel was given some pretty impactful resistance, a decree that was put out against him. And Daniel didn't flee. Instead, he went up and he opened the windows towards heaven and prayed to God. What a good, good example Daniel is to us. In the face, face of something unpleasant, it's easy to want to flee. That's, that's our natural tendency. Again, that's that that fight-or-flight syndrome that we have built into us, wired into our physiology of, yeah, if there's danger, I need to get away from it. That, that's just something that's natural. But here we see this is something, a spiritual battle that Jonah was fighting. Again, in, in Scripture, we, we read in the Psalms, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And the answer, thankfully, is nowhere. But yet this is something that man has struggled with all the way back to the beginning of time. Back to the Genesis account. We see Adam and Eve here in Genesis 3. In verse 8 it said, Now they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. And then God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. I was naked and I hid myself. Again, where are you? This, similar to the question that he asked Elijah, what are you doing here? Saints, what a, a blessed position we are when we hear the voice of God speak to our hearts by his spirit, maybe audibly at times, that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to have this, this tendency to want to flee and hide ourselves. But instead, we could be like Daniel and open ourselves up to that communion, to that conversation, to that fellowship with him. But there's been this desire in man to flee from the presence of the Lord, from fleeing to do his will. We see even going on in the Genesis account of Cain and Abel. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod. Again, after he killed his brother, he fled the presence of God. What a great contrast we have in the New Testament. Paul's example, right? If Once he heard from the Lord, once he saw that vision, he goes on to tell King Agrippa, I have not been disobedient to that heavenly vision. Paul, in great contrast to Jonah here, saw that vision, followed that vision that the Lord had given him. And Paul had many, many reasons to do otherwise. Beaten, shipwrecked, hated, left for dead, stoned. But he understood that he was given a dispensation, as we read in 1 Corinthians, to preach the gospel. Paul said, this, there's a necessity laid upon me. He said, woe to me that if I don't preach... If I preach, I have a reward, but if I don't preach, I'm wasting the opportunity that the Lord has put before me. In our own lives, if we choose to, to go down to Joppa, if you will, to go the opposite way of where the Lord has us to go, we're wasting opportunity. We're wasting this precious commodity that we know as time, that we're encouraged to redeem the time because we know that it's short, it's passing, it's fleeting. Again, we look at Jonah's life, he was... He was obedient to deliver that message to the Israelites. But when it came time to do something that he didn't want to do, he was disobedient. In our own lives, we, not, we may not always have the chance to speak to those in opposition to us, at work or school or wherever it may be. 
But we always get the chance to live before them. We always get the chance to bear a testimony of righteousness, of the Lord working in our lives. We need to value that. Jonah did not. Instead, Jonah paid the fare. He paid the fare willingly to choose to go away from the Lord. And then when I think about paying the fare, I see some parallels to the prodigal son. And we can turn to Luke 15 and read a couple passages there in Luke 15. And we'll probably come back to the prodigal son here in future lessons because I do think there are some parallels and we see some, some similarities between the prodigal son and Jonah. But in Luke 15, verse 14, <clears throat> we read, But when he, had, when he had spent all, the prodigal son here, he had spent all that he had. He paid the fare, if you will. There arose a severe famine in that land, and they began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. And again, many, many lessons there to unpack, which we won't this morning. Suffice to say, the son here, the prodigal son, chose his own way. He chose to say, I'm going to Tarshish instead of staying here with my father. He chose his own desires, his own wants over those of his father. The same things that we see Jonah doing. The son here ended up living with the pigs, desiring to eat what they had. As we'll see shortly, Jonah ended up in the belly of a fish and the filth and the bile of a, of a fish's stomach. Jonah went down to Joppa. Again, it doesn't really matter where it is if it's opposite of what God has for us to do. He made a choice to reject and to go after his own ways. Again, he knew what he was doing, and he made a willful choice. Jonah chose to go after the things of his own heart, his own desire, his own mind, his own intent, rather than those of what God had for him. Let's go ahead and read verses 4 to 6. It'll just give us a little primer into what we'll head next week. Back to Jonah chapter 1 and verse 4. In Jonah 1 verse 4, we read, Now Jonah's on the ship, they're headed to Tarshish. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your guard, call on your guard God. Perhaps, he will, perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. So they're sailing to Tarshish. They're on the ship. Jonah, in his mind, may think that he's done it. He's accomplished what he wanted. He has fled from the Lord. His plan is working perfectly. There just happens to be a ship waiting for him to jump on, and he gets to sail away from God. Nineveh is still wallowing in their misery, their filth, their wickedness, and Jonah is alive and well, fleeing the Lord on the SS Minnow opposite of where God wants him to be, opposite of the evil enemy that he's trying to prevent from hearing the grace message. And at times in our own lives, we may think that we've gotten away with things because things are just allowed to happen. The Lord allows us to do things that we want to do sometimes, or maybe just permits is maybe a better word, permits our rebellion and our rejection. And at times we we think that we may get away with it. We may think that we have fled the presence of the Lord. 
But we understand that we can never flee the presence of the Lord, that his eye is always upon us. As we see here, the Lord sent out a great wind, and that, the thought of that ascending out is literally hurled, cast forth. God had an intention in sending out this wind, a purpose in his actions to accomplish his will. And the thing that always puts me in awe of the Lord is when he uses the might of his power that he does it with his benevolence. He does it because he wants his best for us. He wants us to change course, to follow suit after him. Yes, the Lord has a just wrath, but he never acts out of spite, out of a power trip. He acts for our good. And we'll close this morning in Psalms 107, where we see, again, this storm that came out and the impact that must have come from it. In Psalms 107, 23 to 26, it says, Those who go down into the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep, for he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens and they go down again to the depths. The soul melts because of trouble. The ocean, the sea, is a powerful force. It's so representative of God's power and how great and mighty that he is. Again, we see here descriptive of those who are doing business on the water. They see the works of God. They see the power that he has as the waves lift them up and take them down. Their soul melts because they have no control. God alone controls. God alone is almighty. God alone has that power. We'll stop there this morning and pick up in verse 5 next week.